0: Listening
1: Dog Media. Am I allowed to swear, Chris?
0: Well, it depends what you want to say.
1: Oh, I just—I'm going to drop a shit. That's all. Yeah, go. How
0: to DJ? How to DJ? DJ. How to DJ? It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How To DJ. There's nothing quite like doing a radio show.
1: It's what I love, is which is music and, and talking. We can spend more time worrying about social media
0: than music, which is bonkers. How To DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I really couldn't find or feel anything else in my life that gave me the same level of enjoyment. And my guest for this episode is the host of Radio 1's Future Artists and the Indie Show. You know, I was
1: very much in the scene and very keen to lift that scene up because I I knew what was coming through. I knew it was going to have a moment again He's a face of the BBC at Glastonbury. This lady came over to me and said, now, you're either a dog walker or a radio DJ. He's also on MTV. You know, cameras are cameras and a microphone's a microphone. They're the same thing at the end of the day. There have certainly been times where my friends have said, oh, you've changed. I felt like I was in this, this storm of culture. I felt like I was part of a scene in a scene That was the click moment where I was like, I want to do that.
0: Jack Saunders, hello and welcome to How To DJ.
1: Yes, Chris, thank you so much for having me. Jack, which came first, a love of radio or music? I would say a love of radio. A love of radio was the very, very first thing. It was the driving to school in the car with Radio 1 on. It was the sitting up in my bedroom, doing my homework with Radio 1 on. It was just the excitement and engagement that the radio brought to me. I I really couldn't find or feel anything else in my life that gave me the same level of enjoyment, and I I fell in love with it straight away. I liked how broadcasters like Scott Mills or Zane Lowe or Sarah Cox, um, I liked how they were able to create the image of what they were talking about very vividly in your head without you actually seeing them. That was just the real kind of thing that I was taken aback by. And yeah, I, I fell for it and just wanted to go on and do it myself. And
0: when did you, do you think, decide that it, it could be a career?
1: When I was 15, I remember. I was in the car on the way to school. It was Moyles on Breakfast at the time and it was him, Dave, Dom, the producers on the show. I think Aled, who's the boss of Radio 1, was, was producing the show at the time. And it just sounded like fun. I was never academic at school. I did sport and music at school and drama. Those are my things that I was really good at. And I was not going to be sat down at a desk at all. No way. And I set my sights on it and just went for it. Were you big
0: into music as a teenager?
1: You know what? I didn't really discover music. When I say discover music, I didn't really, I suppose, immerse myself in music until I got to university when I was like 18. My mom and dad didn't not like music. It wasn't like they stopped me from listening to music or anything like that. They just didn't really have a big kind of passion for it. And so it was only really when I got to university that I started hanging out with people that did. I was in Nottingham at the time. It had a big music scene as well. And yeah, I just immersed myself in it once I got to university. And that was that, to be honest with you. It was gigs every night talking about music on the radio, going back, listening to old stuff that I might have missed from the years previously.
0: Yeah, it was, um, I suppose, a crash course in music for three years of my life. For those that know Nottingham, which pubs, clubs and venues were you going to? So
1: Rock City, that's the big one. And obviously you got the arena, but then in terms of just like an actual like proper venue, Rock City is the big one. I remember we had a Facebook group for all of us on our university course and someone put in, I've got two tickets to see Foles. It was on the, I think it was the What Went Down tour. And I remember them saying, yeah, I can't go. Who wants them? Snapped them up like that. And I remember everyone going, no, you're not a big Foles fan. You don't know the song. And everyone was so gutted. And I, I managed to get them. And at the time... I was quite new to that band, to be honest with you, and that gig was a really poignant moment because the aggressive, visceral nature of that show was really quite enlightening to me. Watching Yanis up on stage be just that unbelievable front man that he is where he takes no prisoners and turns a venue like Rock City in front of a few thousand people into like the middle of a volcano in the pits of hell. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a proper fiery show. I was actually, it was the Holy Fire Tour. So I remember Inhaler being like a huge moment in that show. So yeah, that was a big moment. And then you've got the likes of Rescue Rooms. You have Bodega, the Jazz Cafe. I mean, Nottingham has countless venues. It's one of the best cities for venues for music.
0: I agree. I I was there a few years before you, but uh, I, I saw David Bowie at Rock City, which was one of the best gigs of my life. Wow. What course did you do? I did broadcast journalism. That's a big one at Nottingham Trent.
1: Yeah, I think it still is one of the biggest kind of broadcast courses in the country at the time. When I first went to university, I was actually kind of in a sport mode and I wanted to be a sports commentator. And then when I kind of found the music, I was like, oh no, this is it. This is what I really, really love. And I kind of, I've let that be. But my love of sport still very much exists. I'm obsessed with it. I play football every Friday and Saturday and I follow everything very, very closely. I don't shout about it as much as I probably should do, but I am a bit of an obsessive. Are you good at football? Yeah. I like to think so i got some moves yeah for sure
0: <laughs> have you ever tried uh any esports commentary
1: i have a little bit yeah when i was younger and trying to get into the industry i was very active in messaging people who you know i looked up to and alistair bruce ball who is on five live and does a lot of commentary for them he um I think he was from Cambridge or went to the same school as me. Um, but uh, he, he was one of the first people to kind of give me a, a, a bit of time of day. And he was like, oh, why don't you practice commentating over the match of the day highlights? So I'd practice my commentary over there and he'd give me a bit of feedback from time to time when he had a moment. And then I went and shadowed a lot at BBC Radio Cambridgeshire and did Peterborough United and Cambridge United. And uh, the local teams around there, Histon, I think, as well, was one that was in the National League at the time. So, yeah, it was a
0: good experience. Weirdly, when I was in uh, Nottingham, uh, one of my first uh, paid jobs at Radio Nottingham was doing the sports reporting. Yes. And the sports desk. It's a big one in Nottingham as well. Yeah. Some big rivalries going on. Big teams uh, and a lot of sport. Okay, so, Jack, at Nottingham Trent then, did you do student radio there yet? Yes, I did, yeah.
1: How was that? Amazing. I will definitely put that down as probably one of the most important parts of my journey to where I am now. I was an unbelievably keen individual, probably to the point where I was annoying and people were probably like, oh God, this guy's intense and that kind of thing. But I just wanted to do it so badly. And I threw everything I had at it in my first year. Actually, I did a bit of sports commentating. I would have done the varsity rugby match, for example. And I did the journalism side of it. I did the music side of it. I did an entertainment show. I was station manager in my second year. I mean, I just was obsessed with the radio and I wanted to learn everything there was to know about it because I felt like if I knew the other aspects, I would be able to apply and understand them within the role that I really wanted to do, which was broadcasting music. So for example, the way I wanted to do the show, essentially, like I do now on Radio 1, was run it really slick type production. And that takes knowing the desk inside out and almost knowing the sounds in your head and how it flows in your head before you've even gone on air. And it's got to the point now where I can do it with my eyes closed. But at student radio, I had to learn it kind of systematically. So I had to learn how to be a presenter and talk on the radio. I had to learn how to produce bulletins and, and music and various other different points to the point now where I can just merge it all together whilst I'm on air in two hours of radio and get it sounding really slick. So it was kind of just my first, I guess, insight into production. I think if you know the production, then you're going to be a far better presenter.
0: How were those early shows on student radio?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Horrific. Terrible. I think probably for the first maybe month, two months, I probably shit myself before... Most shows just because I wanted to be so good so quickly. And I think when you listen to the radio, the thing about it is you're like, wow, they're just talking normally. I can do that. Surely anyone can do that. They're just talking normally. But it's almost like you have to break down how you communicate as a human being in normal life and reconstruct it when you're on the radio in a totally different way, but then make it seem like it's like totally normal. There's a lot of structure that goes into broadcasting. And so those first few months were big learning curves. But, you know, after the first couple of years, and especially going into my third year where I really focused on my presenting and knew what I wanted to do, because I got nominated for a Specialist Music Award at the Student Radio Awards. I'd interned at, it was then XFM, now Radio X. During that summer, I was in a place where alternative music was the kind of heartbeat of the radio station. That's what I really loved. And I started to really understand what it took to be a professional broadcaster. And I carried on working at, well, I say working, work experience at XFM into my third year. I traveled down every weekend to intern on this show with Leanna Bird and I helped her out. But really why I wanted to be down there is because I could use the studios on a Sunday night because no one was in there. And so the show would finish at 7 p.m. I wasn't really supposed to be going in there, but like I said, no one was in there. So I just took my chance and I would record a demo every single weekend, a brand new one using all the production from The radio station, so I felt like I was on air and I was in the moment. And I had lovely Dan O'Connell, who's still on Radio X now, mentoring me. He was like, "Just send me the demo, I'll give you the feedback." And I think everyone who wants to maybe do broadcasting or, or actually, really, actually, any walk of life, it's always important to have just the person that is there for you, no matter what. The person that you can have a moan to, have a cry to, have a laugh with. They'll just give you the feedback and help you and guide you. And Dan O'Connell was definitely that person for me, so I'm very indebted to him. But you know eventually i got got my little break off the back
0: of back of that what kind of stuff did dan say to you
1: well like i said before i was a very intense keen individual because i wanted to do it so bad it was never from a place of kind of spite or you know i want to smash everyone out of the water and be better than you it was just i personally wanted to do it so badly and dan was just very good at kind of calming my personality down a little bit and just saying breathe for a second don't rush this journey enjoy this journey I've just turned 30 because, you know, before you know it, you would have moved on and you'll be somewhere else in life. And when he told me that and kind of kept pushing that home to me, it really did help. And as soon as I started to relax, everything started to click into place so much faster. And in ways that I wanted it to click into place, I didn't feel like I was having to jump through hoops of things that I didn't necessarily want to be doing straight away. Yeah, he was um, really, really golden.
0: How did you get the gig on Radio 1?
1: So I'd done Kerrang! And then I'd been at Radio X. I'd done early breakfast at Radio X on the weekends for a year and a bit. Then I did mid-mornings for a year and a bit. And then the opportunity for an indie show came up at Radio 1. And I think there were other people ahead of me. I wasn't really considered over there at all because I'd never been over there. But I took a few meetings with them. And I was young at the time. I was 25. I had... My night hopscotch just starting up where I was supporting brand new bands and artists. Um, at the time I was just DJing like alternative music in these like little dingy sticky clubs and stuff and also at my night. So I was very much in the scene and very keen to lift that scene up because I knew what was coming through. I knew it was going to have a moment again as we're kind of seeing right now with I suppose more of the kind of punky stuff this kind of heavier aggression that's coming through in alternative music and and mainstream actually. But, you know, I was seeing that from those earlier stages so i knew it was coming through so i was very very supportive of it and i always had been but the moment was there and and when i got my chance to sit in front of the bosses i just really used all that passion and drive that had gotten me to where i was already to deliver why i felt like i was right for that role and having listened to annie Zane, Lamac, hugh stevens as well and a bunch of other brilliant specialist broadcasters kind of formed this idea of how my show on Radio 1 would sound. And in that moment in front of them, I just felt like everything was clicking into place. I felt like the journey I'd been on had been to kind of get to this moment where I could have a chance and a shot at it. And yeah, it, it, it worked, I guess. I went in for one pilot to see how I sounded on air. I think one pilot is unheard of really at Radio 1. But I think the fact that I knew what I wanted this show to sound like what I wanted it to stand for, I think that really played in my favour, to be honest with you. I wasn't ever going to let that opportunity go, because it's all I ever wanted. How did you find out you got the gig? I got called. uh, My management said, how are you looking right now? I was like, what? How are you looking? You dressed appropriately. I was like, "At this, sorry, I should probably contextualise, actually. So at that time, I didn't know I was going to be joining Radio 1, but I'd taken the risk to leave Radio X with the idea that potentially the opportunity to join Radio 1 might come up because of how contracts worked and things like that. And like I said before, I was like, look, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go for this. And if it doesn't work, then I will hold my hands up. And fair enough, it wasn't the right time. So I went for it. So I was just at home doing nothing with my life. And I um, got a call from my management going, yeah, how are you dressed right now? How are you looking? And I was like, well, I'm sort of in my pyjamas, casual clothes. They were like, okay, put some nice clothes on, have a shower, because basically just like lounging around. it was almost like COVID times in a way, doing nothing. Coming to London, I was like, okay, fine. Just thinking that we'd be, I don't know, catching up or something like that. I met them and we started walking and I thought we were just walking to a restaurant or something like that. And we kept getting closer to the BBC and I was like, where are we going? And we got to the front of the BBC and things started to click. And I didn't necessarily think I'd got the gig. I just sort of thought we were going back in for a catch-up meeting or something like that. Uh, We went up to one of the playlist rooms and the bosses were there. And Ben Cooper said to me, how would you like to join Radio 1? And I remember my face just beaming, you know, to the point where your cheeks start to ache deep within. The smile could not leave my face. I don't think I said anything straight away because I couldn't believe what he just said. And then Ali kind of went, well, I was like, "Uh, yes, yes. Okay, fine. Yes, I would love to. I didn't I had no idea how to react because I'd spent so long trying to make this moment happen that I didn't really necessarily believe it was ever actually going to happen. When you spend so long doing something, you never probably really think that it is going to come around and I started crying after we left the building and my granddad had passed away a few like actually in that second year of university when I was at Radio X doing that internship and he'd said to me just before he'd passed away like, "Oh, I just wish I could have been here." to hear you or see you on the BBC. Um, And I felt like I'd kind of done that for him. And it was a really proud moment for myself. There hadn't been one time in my life up until that point where I'd really achieved something that I dedicated my life to. It was an unbelievable feeling. Nothing else will ever eclipse finding out that you're joining Radio One, ever. It was amazing.
0: Oh, Jack. (laughs) You're doing a fantastic job on Radio One. I, I love listening to you. Tell me about choosing the music for shows. What are you listening for and how do you put the shows together? So I'm sent music throughout the whole entire week.
1: Me and my producers will essentially kind of put it into a a massive spreadsheet. And then my producer will go through and just filter out the stuff that definitely isn't ready yet. And that will leave me with still quite a large amount of music to go through and listen to. That's stuff that's just sent to us, DMs, pluggers, whatever it might be, on top of things that you know i've come across seen at a gig on a support slot found on tiktok or whatever it might be there's a large amount to go through i'd probably say anywhere between 100 and 200 bits of brand new music every single week and in terms of what i'm listening for i think it's changed and is always changing now with how young people are consuming music it's even more disposable than what it used to be but i think my job is to try and Help them resonate with the music. I am the only one. There is no other medium, and this isn't just young people, this is anyone really. There's no other medium that can engage someone in a song like radio. Everything else is just algorithmic. Here you have an actual human being who actually really cares, wants to understand the music, and wants to help you understand the music. And so for me, when I'm listening, I want to hear stuff that is progressive and exciting, but I also want to hear stuff that connects with how we're all feeling at the moment connects in the now the present time and properly reflects the emotion the feelings that from a radio one perspective that young people are going through at the moment and i think it's a difficult time for young people and i think that is really reflected in the music that's coming through and that's why you're feeling a lot of kind of punkish energy within all sorts of genres now you know on top of the fact that you know, mainly due to the the kind of algorithmic style and the accessibility of music. Genres are totally blended. So um, never short of progressive ideas for sure, but it's who can harness it best, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I would say that uh, algorithms are incredible and they're Mm. brilliantly sophisticated, but radio is made with love. Agreed. The emotion there is next to none, without a doubt. Okay, Jack, time for the first of your... Five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45, Steve, so I'll dip in. You say when? Go. This is good for you, I think. Can you complete this sentence? I've got the best job in the world because... (sighs) Nice,
1: that is a good question. I do have the best job in the world. I thoroughly believe that. I think this is because of actually the last couple of years when we went through COVID times, And I think during that time, it helped me realise how powerful the connection really can be between me and who I'm talking to on the other end of the microphone. I have the best job in the world because of connection. And again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying around what I'm looking for within the music. Same goes for me when I'm on the radio. I want to be able to connect with these people. I want to be able to almost live and breathe what they're going through. I want to be able to play music that resonates with them, talk about things that resonate with them. I get a serious kick out of providing enjoyment and fulfillment for other people. And for me, that makes this the best job in the world. It's limitless connection. It's worldwide. It's the best job
0: in the world. Excellent answer. Uh, Back into the box for a second question. So, Go for it. What's the most famous you've ever felt?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. The other day I was walking my dog. And uh, this lady came over to me and said, now, you're either a dog walker or a radio DJ. And I don't know which one because I'm always out walking my dog and and my friend's dogs. Because I work in the evenings, I tend to go out in the mornings and the afternoon. But I think she'd recognize the red hair from Glastonbury as well. And I go, well, which one do you think it is? And she goes, well, I think I've seen you on the TV at Glastonbury, but also I see you with a lot of dogs all the time. And so I was like, well, I'm, you know, you would have seen me on Glastonbury, but I do also love dogs too. So maybe it's a, a dual occupation, but it's nice to kind of feel recognised, you know, around near where I live or, you know, I think a festival is usually the place where it's pretty inundated with people coming over and saying hi. And often the, the things are, I love your energy. I love your passion. I love the way you talk about music. I love your interviews. And to me, that is the ultimate compliment because again, I only have real genuine passion and energy for everything that I do. And for people to feel that, resonate with that and get something out of that, that is the best. So I'd probably say the most famous I've ever felt is at a festival when you get people coming up to you and telling you that they listen or seen you, something like that. But it's nice when the odd, old lady and her, her little spaniel comes around and notices you as well.
0: <laughs> you do MTV as well. How do you find TV?
1: I love TV and it's obviously a totally, well, it's not totally different. Obviously, the, the visual aspect is uh, is easier. You You can be more expressive with, you know, your body and stuff like that. But I think... TV comes in my stride a little easier because of the radio that I've done. Radio really forces you to be in the moment and think on your feet and be more colourful and have a lot more expression with how you use your voice and your words. And just because you've got the visual aspect there doesn't mean you should ever sacrifice that. It's still equally as important with TV. And so when when you come to being on TV, because not a whole load of TV is live, whereas a lot of radio is live. And Glastonbury, for example... There was a moment where Lauren Laverne couldn't be on and I had to go on make my debut on BBC One on my own and solo on BBC One. But I felt comfortable in that environment, one, because I'd done MTV, for example, and so I was happy in front of camera, but also two, being on the radio just allowed me to have that confidence in that scenario because I'd done it so many times over in front of a microphone and, you know, a camera's a camera, a microphone's a microphone, they're the same thing at the end of the day. <laughs>
0: How to DJ with Chris Hawkins Still to come
1: I have to be honest with you I don't want to be a station sound producer I just want to be a presenter on Radio 1 She just looked at me silently for a bit And I thought oh no Being ahead is very important to me I'm an incredibly competitive soul Another question from the box
0: Just say when I'm going to let you have a bit more of a dive through this time Go has anyone ever knocked you back?
1: Yes, definitely. I think knockbacks came far earlier on. Maybe not so much when I began to kind of get my foothold in the industry a bit more, but I think knockbacks were far earlier on in a school environment, uh, in a university environment, where when you're younger in your teenage years and your early 20s, People feel a bit threatened, or kids feel it's uncool to be passionate about something, to enjoy something, to want to be driven to do something. Unless you're running around trying to kiss girls and, you know, do silly things with your mates, then you're not cool. But I just, all I really cared about was being on the radio from 15 years old, like I said. So overcoming those times as a kid kind of toughened me up a little bit for any potential knockbacks in the industry. And I quickly learned that knockbacks are a good thing knockbacks are just another step towards the place where you're meant to be if you get a knockback it's just not the right time or it's not the right thing that you're supposed to be doing and you know there were times where i got close to doing demos at radio one even before i was at radio x because i'd worked really hard to meet people there um i'd gone for a job interview to be a station sound producer at radio one and i got an interview not because i wanted to be a station sound producer at radio one because i just wanted to be in the building I went into the interview totally unprepared, without the skill set to produce imaging for Radio 1 or anything at all. I just went into the interview and kind of riffed off some stuff. And I think they knew what was going on. And I got an email a few weeks later going, unfortunately, you've been unsuccessful, but we'd love to invite you back in for some work experience. And you know what? That's that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be back in that building. And Rebecca Frank was the editor at the time. And She sat me down. She's like, what do you want to get out of this? And it was the first day. And I said to her, I was like, Rebecca, I have to be honest with you. I don't want to be a station sound producer. I just want to be a presenter on Radio 1. She just looked at me silently for a bit and I thought, oh no, I'm going to get kicked out of here. Because that could have gone one of two ways. And um, luckily her response was, okay, I'll help you. I think she kind of admired the tenacity of it and uh, how it was a little ballsy to go ahead and do that. And so she introduced, I I did the station sound work experience, but she introduced me to a few people along the way. And I sent demos and got feedback and just kind of got my name about there. So yeah, Rebecca Frank, who I think is at Kiss now, but yeah, is another one that helped me along. But yeah, those, those little knockbacks, those things that don't feel right are usually the steps closer to where you need to be, I think.
0: I had no idea that you were such a radio geek.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Real nerd. I love it, Chris. I really, really do. I know. But this is what I'm saying. You have to be obsessive. If you want to be at the top or you want to achieve what you want to achieve, you have to be obsessive. And I am obsessive. And that now transcends into not just my radio, but the DJing I do. You know, it's a real heavy emphasis on the production and my DJing and the energy of my sets and the microphone. It's the same with my night. It's the same with a record label that I'm trying to start up and other projects that I've got. Yeah, you have to really be obsessive,
0: I think. Do you still love doing your nights?
1: Yes, I do. I loved it. I I used to hate them because there is no fear, like putting on a night, selling it out, and then your mind continually convincing yourself that no one is going to turn up. It will happen. Yeah. Ticket sales, being a promoter, I don't know who does it. You've got to have a special kind of, like steeliness within your body to be a promoter. That is nerve-wracking at the best of times. But, you know, I went through nights where I sold five tickets, ten tickets. I went through those nights and those are your learning curve moments. Those are the moments where if you really cut out for it, you'll learn from the mistakes and you'll go ahead and improve on them. And, yeah, we're doing good now.
0: Do you think that being obsessive about something, which is the kind of message that's coming through from talking to you, Mm -hmm. How does that affect your personal life?
1: Uh, You sacrifice friendships, some points relationships. Um, There have certainly been times where my friends have said, oh, you've changed. You're not who you used to be. We've lost contact from you. Um, Do I regret that a little bit? But I know that at the end of the day, I have one chance to have a go at this. It's my life. I've got one moment on the planet. Who knows when it could come to an end. I just want to feel fulfilled and that I've done the best that I can for myself. I think a lot of what I do is for other people in that I love to entertain other people. I love to put on a show for other people. I love to make other people feel welcomed and engaged and just that passion and warmth that I put through the radio. I, I love that they resonate with that, as I've said before. And I think when it comes to the end of the week, when I get my couple of days off, seeing my friends talking to my friends is sometimes the last thing I want to do, not because I don't want to see my friends or hang out with my friends, just because I've given so much social energy through the radio, the TV, my DJing, whatever it might be, that I just want to sit down with my dog and just, (laughs) yeah, she's right here
0: just to sleep. What is she? She's a little
1: multi-poo called Winnie. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to sit down and just be with myself. So yes, it's definitely had an impact, but I wouldn't change anything.
0: No, I get that. Uh, back into the box for another question. Question four. Say when, Jack. Now, go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Who's your one single biggest influence and why? Zane Lowe. Zayn Lowe,
1: because... His energy that he was able to emit through the radio is the kind of energy that I want to emit through the radio We're different broadcasters, with different people, with different presenters. But at the end of the day, the radio is all about connection. When I listened to Zane, I felt connected. I felt like I was in this storm of culture, this storm of culture. I felt like I was part of a scene, in a scene, whether I was listening for the very first time and I hadn't heard a single track that he'd ever played before, I didn't know who he was, all of a sudden, you felt like you were a part of something really special and exclusive and new and fresh and like you were ahead of the game a little bit. 7 till 9pm on Radio 1 during those times was a special, special time. And yeah, that energy was the thing that I connected to most. That was the click moment where I was like, I want to do that. I want to have the same connection that Zayn has with me. And if I can do half of that for other people, then That is job done. You know, the way I've grown as a presenter, I feel is a lot different to Zane. But I think for any presenter, connection and warmth and creating something special through the radio with your voice is key. No matter whether you're doing some sort of political broadcast, a music show, an entertainment show, whatever it might be, it's essential. And Zane was the master and is the master at doing that. Your analysis of the
0: medium is deep, Jack. Is it?
1: Yeah. It feels... Um, yeah, I guess, again, obsessive. Like I said, I'm always listening. I'm always watching. Being ahead is very important to me. I'm an incredibly competitive soul uh, to the point where, you know, when I was younger and I play sports, I would be 15, 16 years old. There would be tears running down my face if we lost the game. And that wasn't because, you know, I'd got hurt or anything like that. That's just because I deeply cared about winning and about being the best. And I guess I've kind of transferred that want and desire to be the best over to my broadcasting. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't crying when I didn't get a job or crying when I haven't played a band for the very first time. But, you know, I've managed to harness the tears now and uh, bring that into, you know, who I want to be as an individual, what I want to do with my life. And so far, so good. You know, it's a drive that I feel like I've always had. Do you think you've already achieved your end goal in radio? I guess, uh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't achieved my end goal yet. It will come, but my goal was to be on Radio 1 and I have achieved that. Um, What I can do whilst I'm at Radio 1 is really the next project. I guess that's a bit more of a, a difficult thing to try and achieve because there are other people in the mix in that, other presenters, bosses. You know, sometimes... It's not in your hands, no matter how hard you work or how badly you want it. Sometimes the timing is not right and you just have to accept that. And I think I have the ability to accept that because of other knockbacks that I've had along the way. But, you know, we'll see where we go and where we end up. If I can get to Radio 1 when plenty of people told me only one or two people get to break through into Radio 1, then I can do anything really, can't I?
0: You can with an attitude like that. I think it would be unfair to ask you what that next thing might be, but I get the feeling that you're going to be staying at the BBC for as long as you can.
1: Absolutely. It is my home. It is my heartbeat, I guess, and every ounce of potential that I have and everything that I want to do can definitely be at that place.
0: One more question from the box. Your final question, Jack. Say when. Go for it. What do you wish you'd never done? Oh my God,
1: what do I wish I'd never done? I I don't regret anything that I've done, honestly. And I'm not just saying that as a cop out to the question. I genuinely do not regret anything that I've done. All the mistakes that I have made along the way, I am happy that I have made those mistakes because those were an opportunity to learn and grow as an individual and uh, kind of build the strength up If they happen again to be able to deal with them. So I don't regret anything at all. The only thing perhaps is that when I was younger, not to listen to the pushbacks, not to listen to the people that kind of hated on what I wanted to do or the where I wanted to go or told me that I couldn't do it, not to listen to those people and just really truly believe in what I wanted to do and who I was. But again, that comes with time and you know that's an ideal world and scenario right there. So really I'm happy with the journey that I've done. Really
0: happy, actually. You've been really inspiring, Jack. I've got one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. What would they be?
1: Oh my God, Chris. The last three. Oh, okay. Uh, If the world is ending, I want to go out in some sort of ferocious style. Am I soundtracking for other people here, Chris? Is this a personal playlist in my ears? This is an important question.
0: Well, I think it's the end of the world, isn't it? You've got to do it a bit for you.
1: For me. All right, if I'm doing it for myself, I'm probably going to go out on a on some kind of ferocious ending. So Arctic Monkeys' Brian Storm is definitely going to be in there. I'd probably then go ahead and pick a Queens of Stone Age track. we go probably Songs to the Deaf. You Think I Ain't Worth a Dollar, But I Feel Like a Millionaire. Going to want to go out again ferociously, but feeling like a boss. And then I might just cool it all off and just um, maybe Nirvana heart-shaped box and just kind of sit there and think about what I've been through how good it's been and uh, I've had
0: a pretty good ride Uh, fantastic Jack thank you so much Jack Saunders thank you Chris that was how to DJ thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from